This morning, uh, we want to continue on kind of a new direction that we started last week. Uh, and, and the idea, uh, as we've been talking about this, the reality that God has wired us to connect with Him, to communicate with Him, uh, to be able to talk and listen to Him. And this is really what makes it possible to walk life with Him. Uh, that it's really in the moment we are capable of hearing God, discerning God, responding to God. And, and in that process, it means that we can successfully walk our life out with Him. Last week, we introduced what I believe is one of the greatest challenges of actually pulling that off. And that challenge really rests in this, this dilemma where we are constantly, through our challenges, through our questions, through lots of different things, uh, we are bringing God down to our level. We, we dilute the person of God from all-powerful, from almighty. Uh, we, we don't fear him in, in, the, in the reality and in the understanding that he is always right. He is always perfect. You know, we really want to be right sometimes. Have you ever been wrong every time with somebody else and you just for once would like to be right? I, I think I see people looking at one another. I, I, I think uh, I was in a scenario like that yesterday uh, with someone, and they were challenging me uh, on some technicalities of aircraft. I felt bad, you know? This person was wrong every time. And they weren't just a little wrong. They were really wrong. And so, and then they kept betting me that they were right. And we weren't really betting anything, but... At the end of it all, uh, it, was, it was tough to say, no, you're, you're wrong about everything. <laughs> it wasn't tough for me, actually, but it was tough, tough for that person. The, the reality is, when we dilute the person of God, we dilute the very power we're able to receive from. We're not diluting his power, we're diluting our ability to operate and act in that power. And, and it's called pride. Pride is where we want to be on some level equal with God. We're willing to let him be God, but we want a fair amount of autonomy in how we live. And so it's in this idea that I, I kind of bring it out that submitting to his lordship in our life is to God a, not a negotiable. That that will be what happens there will be a submission to his worship. Now, last week we looked at these three uh, statements that are made in the scripture. It's just God's view of the humble, which is the opposite of the proud. Uh, and in Psalm 25, 9, these will all be in the NIV. Uh, he guides the humble. He teaches the humble the right way, the, the way that's going to work for you. It's not just about it's right for him, it's right for you. And he guides you and he teaches you in that, the humble, because you're allowing him to do that. Psalm 147, verse 6, he sustains the humble. He keeps us going. He re-empowers. He does everything that makes us continue to succeed. And then Psalm 149, 4, he takes delight 
and the humble. And he shares this reality that he crowns them with victory. The humble are never thought of as the victors. They're never thought of as the conquerors. They're never thought of as the ones who come out ultimately on top of the pile. But God is humble. And God says, if you humble yourself and you follow me, you will have victory in your life. So that's what he sees and that's what he says about the humble. Not really so with the proud. He sees the proud as this, <clears throat> this reality of a barrier. And that, and that barrier we're going to look at a little bit. But he says he gives grace, generosity, uh, as the scripture says, but he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So it says, humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So the idea is, Submit yourself to God, and that means that he goes up here as God and that we come under him as submitted to his lordship. And God says, when you do this, then resist Satan and he will leave you. Do you you hear this reality that the greatest enemy you have loses a lot of his power to influence and affect your life? When you place yourself under God. When you put yourself in the place in right relationship with God, living with God in that way. Uh, It's not up here, but 1 Peter uh, 5 uh, and 6, it says, uh, all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. So that extends this way. We think, well, I can be humble before God, but I can be equal with everybody else. God says, you're not... You're not approaching this correctly. It's not about who's below you and who's above you. It's about where are you placing yourself. It's about what you're doing with you. It's not about where other people are at. It's about where you are choosing to place you. Clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God sees pride as your condition or my condition. If you are a proud person, if you are prideful, you are prideful. You're prideful this way. You're prideful this way. You're prideful this way. You're a prideful person. If you want to be equal, if you want to be on top, if you want to be in charge, if you want to have control, if you want your rights, if you want your privileges, if you want your fame, your fortune... then it will happen in all directions of your life. God is saying it's not really possible to be humble this way and arrogant and proud this way. But we would like to think that is possible. We would like to think, you know, I bow to no man, but I will bow only to God. We would have to be really careful with that language because of how we see the word bow. God might say, would you submit yourself? Would you, would you submit yourself to a person? If 
you can't do that, you probably can't submit yourself to me either. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, it says, that in that he may lift you up in due time. You hear the same outcome is what he's speaking of. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's the same message. It's the same one. He is looking for a people who does not have to elevate themselves above other people. He's looking to raise up a people who becomes comfortable being under his lordship. We're not ashamed of it. We don't have to hide it. Uh, If we're at church and, you know, uh, we feel like God is drawing us to our knees, we don't kind of just, you know, bend them a little bit. We can submit to him and his lordship. And we're not ashamed of that. So here's a question. What does a mystically wired life, that means a life where where somebody has the ability to communicate with God, hear God, speak with God, journey with God, respond to God, this person, what does a life like that look like when it is existing in the resistance of God? If he resists the proud, and if I am and saying, you know, I want to choose for my life, God. I want to do this. Normally, we don't make that statement. Normally, we just choose. We just make certain decisions. We don't take them to God. Um, We don't really feel the need to. What does it look like to live a life, this person that could speak with God, could listen to God, could respond to God, but they have not submitted themselves to God, so they're living in the resistance of his presence. I pulled some uh, pieces out of Scripture, and some of the texts are long, so I'm I'm just going to give you the punchlines, and we'll be going further into this in the weeks to come. But the first is, they feel distant from God. We We are creatures that leak. Anybody ever been to a place and just experiencing a place in your life where you were really on the mountaintop with God and you just didn't see that breaking down anytime soon and you find yourself a week later in despair and you wonder, how, how did that happen? Anybody ever have that happen to you? Yeah, it happens. They struggle to hear and their prayers are not answered. That's what it feels like to live in the resistance of God. Or, or not or, but also, they're not operating in the design of God for their life. God has a design for their life. They're not in it. They're not operating in it. There's not the joy of that. There's not the presence of that. There's not any of the the stories that life are made of that are coming from that. And so because of that, living in the resistance of God's presence, our values, our priorities, our direction will be our own. We will be finding our own way. 
We will be searching out our own way. And we're not sure if we're doing well or doing poorly, but it's ours. I was thinking of Frank Sinatra's famous song, uh, I Did It My Way. And in listening to the words, which I haven't really liked the song, uh, unfortunately, as I listen to the words, I think, wow, this is, this is the human condition. Um, no matter what, you know, good or bad, through it all, um, I did it my way. I paid the price. Yeah, I've had regrets, uh, but the important thing is I did it my way. That was the important thing. And God would say, that would be the condition of man because that is not the important thing. God would say the important thing is that you did it my way. And finally, affirmation, love, intimacy, success, popularity, acceptance, all of those things, we have to go find them. And normally what we do is we get them from people. Or drugs. Or pornography. Or money. We go get them. Because the truth is, we need them. So truth and reality at this point become our own design. This is what it is to live in the resistance of God. Now, you might have a great job. You might be making straight A's in school. I'm not saying your life will look completely undone. I'm saying that you will be operating and at the controls of all these things. And what that does is it makes you God. You are your God. And this place is the birthplace of something we call regret. Regret comes in all sizes and shapes. About uh, four days ago, I got stopped by a police officer here in Lake Jackson. And the irony is, I was thinking of, as I got into this left-hand turning lane, I recalled once when I got a ticket for turning from a left-hand turning lane because I did not have my blinker on. I didn't know you needed a blinker when you're in the lane that says you have to turn left. Seems like that would be a great indication that you're turning left. But the law did not agree with me, nor did the judge, nor did anybody else except me, um, and the ticket stood. Great, I have somebody here that I think agrees with me. Uh, so as I'm getting into this left-hand turning lane, I think about this and I think, I better put my blinker on. I put my blinker on and I was going through the intersection and these lights come on from a police car. And I'm thinking, this is a little creepy. And it was like, you know, a little deja vu thing going on. So I, I pulled off this side street, and this officer gets out, says, well, you know, the reason I pulled you over is because your brake light, one of your brake lights was out, but when you pulled over and stopped, it's working fine. So I don't know, maybe it's me. 
And they laughed and we laughed and, and I'm still kind of caught up in what's going on here. And, um, and then the officer walked away. And as the officer walked away, I thought, this was a God moment. And I blew it. I was thinking about everything except what is God doing? And I, and I talked with others about it. I thought, man, I, I just want to be a little more receptive there. Last night, I'm driving up to the church. Police car, lights come on behind me. I pull over, it's the same officer. I'm in a different car, I'm in a different vehicle, same officer. So I'm asking God, okay, God, what are we doing here? I'm on, the, I'm on my game this time, what are we doing here? And supposedly, and I'm sure it's true, there was a light out on the license plate. That's why I was being stopped. And so I'm thinking and I'm praying and God has given me nothing. It's just nothing. I'm thinking, my mind is blank. And I was like, come on, come on. This is my second chance. I got it. I understand that. Give me a bone here. I have nothing. And so the officer gives me this warning ticket, and the officer is walking away. And um, I thought, I don't, I don't want to tell people I had a second chance, and I blew it. See? You see how I was more concerned about what you thought. Uh, so I jumped out of the car. <laughs> I know, you think this is going south, huh? <laughs> I'll show you the bruises. No. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of charging the police car, uh, but not, I'm not like running. You know, I'm trying to not look, uh, you know, aggressive. And, uh, and the officer, probably not sure what's going on here, jumps back out real quick kind of taking their stance. I said, I have, to, I have to tell you something. You know, a couple of days ago when you stopped me, and this officer remember, I felt like I was supposed to pray for you, and I didn't do it. And this is my second chance, and I'm not going to blow it. So I want to pray for you. Is there anything I can pray for you? And this person just began to smile. I said, I always need prayer. I said, Anything specific. This person didn't have anything specific, but I just felt like God just filled me to pray. There we are on the side of the road, both of us praying, and I thought, this was about me submitting myself to God. This is about me doing what God is doing in the moment. And, and when I finished praying for this person, it looked like this person was about to give me a hug. And then they kind of caught themselves and they shook my hand. And it, it might not sound like a big story, but what is big is in the moment, God dealt with a little regret I had from a few weeks, from a couple of days earlier. I regretted not praying for this officer. I regretted not seizing that moment. It's what God can do with regrets. It's what God does with these things we call regrets. 
I want us to look at regret in a big, powerful part of the scripture. Genesis 6, verse 5 and 6. This is right after the fall of humanity. And humanity was no longer submitted to God. And outside of that submission, really everything went wrong for humanity. And the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now I want you to hear there are three absolutes in there. God is not really into exaggeration. And he's describing how complete and total the process of pulling out from under God had become. Their hearts were only evil all the time. Verse 6 can really capture. The Lord regretted he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Do you realize that we have the capacity to deeply trouble God? That he has enough heart and compassion to actually experience regret. This must have been a really really sad time for the creator of the universe when something he loved, he regretted it. Regret is a powerful thing, isn't it? A lot of the speaking I do with people for counseling is about their regrets. The person they didn't marry person they did marry, the baby they aborted, the degree they never finished. The relationship they squandered through alcohol or drugs, regrets. The fact that they quit school or they partied through school. There's a definition for regret I give you here. Uh, a feeling often accompanied by sadness and shame and guilt. Regret is when you wish you had done things differently in your past. You, you, wish, you wish you could have a do-over. You wish you could have done it differently. You see, at the core of all regret is this misalignment with the Lordship of Jesus. Regret comes from the reality of not being submitted underneath the Lordship of God.
It doesn't mean that bad things won't happen. It doesn't mean uh, that there won't be pain in your life. What it means is it does not have the power to convince you that you have a worse future and present because it didn't work out the way it was supposed to in the past. Do you see the connection? You see, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that that bad things won't happen. What it means is that we understand and are convinced that under the lordship of Jesus Christ, that our life will produce the very best fruits. I have a cousin many years ago. uh, He was married, a very pretty girl, a very powerful believer, and I really only got to know her washing dishes at a family reunion. I met her one time for like three hours, but it was a lot of dishes. I fell in love with this girl. She was, um, she was smart, she was interesting, and she was so committed to Jesus. And her job, <clears throat> she had a class at school of all the kids that were, um, you know, behavioral problems and gang members, and this was her class, and she was like five foot and 90 pounds. She loved her class. She loved those kids. I was pretty amazed at who she was. And about two months later, maybe three months later, I get a call. Uh, She was riding her horse, and her horse had stumbled. And her horse fell, fell on top of her, and she was crushed. And she died at 27. I was, I was heartbroken. I was devastated. I, I talked to my cousin. How are you? I'm great. He said, Bill, for six months, the Lord has been talking about this with both of us. We knew something was going to happen. And the Lord had us put our financial affairs in order, had us do all these things. The Lord is not absent in the circumstances I'm in. I am not alone. I have not been robbed. The Lord is with me. And he had this peace and joy. I mean, I was more messed up than he was. I did not have peace and joy. I don't know why Robin is gone. I I don't know the answer to that. When I look at 60 kids pulling up in lowriders at her funeral, my heart broke. And I had to rely on the faith of my cousin who serves a God that will not forget a single one of those kids. And if we allow our Father 
to be Lord, if we're willing to submit ourselves to his lordship, that will not have the power to become the regret that says the future is dimmer because of a decision or a choice or a bad thing because the Lord is Lord of the future. The challenge of regrets is really a two-edged sword. Because see, it's very difficult for us to really submit ourselves and humble ourselves unless there seems to be things breaking in our life. I'm not talking about you specifically or me. I'm just saying that in general, humanity often needs crisis to say, God, I need your help. It's very seldom when the money's good, the job is good, the marriage is good, uh, the kids are good, and, you know, you're a good person, you're doing good things. I'm not saying that person isn't submitted to the Lord. I'm saying those are rarely places that we really dig and go deeper. That's rarely a place where I come in and I sense an urgency wow, I know it looks really all together and I really know that's a time when I really need to understand I didn't really pull off any of this. That was the favor of the Lord. Um, we're going to read from the book of Job and uh, first, uh, I think it's chapter 40 if I'm not mistaken and pretty much the whole chapter. And this is God when God begins to talk to Job. If you're not familiar with the story, uh, Job went through uh, some very significant, very difficult trials, lost of all of his wealth, lost of his children, loss of his health, uh, really a loss of his friends and a loss of his wife. And uh, Satan said he will curse you to your face if you take enough things away from him. And Job didn't do that, but Job did. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not really dissing Job. Uh, who, could ride, who could ride that, you know, wave? But he did question, where is God? He had tough questions. And so after 40 chapters, 39 chapters of questions, God decided to answer him. And so this is God's answer. Job 40, verse 1. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me 
to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and, and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Pretty strong response from God, isn't it? God was reminding Job that God is here and Job is here. And he was making that really clear. I'm here and you're here. So if you want to do the things I do and you pull that off, then I will admit to you that you can save yourself. This is Job's response. Then Job replied, Job 42, verse 1 through 6. He replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, what is it that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Thank you. <clears throat> what happened there is the relationship, the condition, the position of God and man was restored. God took the position of God, even in the face of all the really legitimate questions Job had. And Job acknowledged, that's yours to decide. And I repent. Now, if you read the next chapter after that, you will see that God restores everything and you're going to see that the language between God and Job was a language of love, that God showed tremendous respect for Job. And he did have this conversation with Job. And then he had Job pray for all his friends that God was angry with. But it doesn't say he was angry at Job. But he helped Job make sure this was okay. Because as long as the relationship is God is over you and you are submitted to him, you will be okay. It's when this starts moving and we start elevating ourselves and we start lowering God that regrets become greater and greater because we live in the resistance of God. Second Corinthians chapter 9, 
This is 8 through 10. This is Paul speaking, and the Corinthians, Paul had sent a letter to the Corinthians, really rebuking them and challenging them uh, on some of their behavior, some of the things they were doing. Uh, They ultimately did uh, really repent of that, uh, really walked away from that and honored God. He says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, that was 1 Corinthians, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so you were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Do you see how regret can be redeemed? And I want you to see that regrets don't always lead to repentance. I have people that regret many things and then they do them again and again and again. We can say, ah, I can't believe I did that again. I partied all night and I was late to work. Ugh. I got to not do that. And I partied all night. Next time, I was late to work. Oh, I got to not do that. They regret it. But it never changed where they were in submission to God. And ultimately, they get fired from their job. And they regret getting fired from their job. but it doesn't necessarily change their behavior. You see, when we submit ourselves to God, we place ourselves under him. That sorrow and those regrets produce repentance and they turn us to God and he produces life. I've always wanted to live a life without regrets. Is that biblical? I don't know. But I believe this is true. I believe that God is God over regrets when we are under him. And he is aware of what they do to us. He is aware, and he loves you, and he loves me. And his desire is not necessarily that you walk in the pain of a bad decision all of your life. It's that the pain of a bad decision draws you back under him or keeps you under him. Regrets can produce great repentance and turn us in good directions. Regret is God's ongoing effort in the lives of humanity to bring people back into relationship that no longer produces regret. 
and we call it salvation. And after that, God stays in our life and the ongoing work and restored relationship. It's to heal the regrets we have already created, and that's transformation. Some of us live in powerful regret. Some of us are just, they're back there. We don't think about them much. but they're back there. The one that got away, the dream I almost had. God wants to meet us today in those regrets that we may harbor. Things that we did or didn't do. Things we said or didn't say that we wish we could have back. God also today wants us to understand that the place under him is the place you'll be most alive, most free, most successful, and the most without regret. I ask you to stand.